0: Well, we're going to start a series today called Regalia. Regalia. And people are really excited about that. It looks cool. Sounds cool. It's just a lot of people told me they have no idea what that word means. And that's good. That's fine. And uh, so I want to explain a little bit of it. Regalia is the word uh, that is used to to describe anything which is associated with a king or a kingdom. So think like scepter and crown and throne and prince and princesses and all of those kinds of things. And what we're going to be doing is going through First and Second Samuel and we'll be studying the historical events that led Israel from a tribal confederacy where there's 12 tribes that were loosely related. Um, how they transitioned from the tribal confederacy into a monarchy where they were being ruled and reigned uh, by a king. And so what, what happened during that transition, that process? And what's really interesting as we will uh, unpack it, Larry and I are going to do our best to teach that the people and the events and episodes and situations that we read about in First and Second Samuel, all of it is regalia. And all of it is, is associated with God as king and his kingdom. It's not just the nation of Israel, but it's it's the whole thing. And so we're going to see how King David is really pointing us towards King Jesus. And this morning how Samuel, as a priest and prophet, is really pointing us to a better priest and a better prophet whose name is Jesus. And so we're going to see how Hannah is a, a beautiful story of a woman who is gifted by God with a son, but how Hannah is actually an anticipation to another woman who was gifted a son, and that woman's name is Mary, and her son is Jesus. And I'm gonna show you how all of that works. And so we're gonna be diving into the Bible, and my hope is that the Bible would become so much bigger than you ever thought, but also so much more smaller. Smaller in your confidence to, to read it and, and to have access to it, but bigger in the sense of going, well, this is mind-blowing what God has done and so that's the goal that's the aim and I hope we can follow through <laughs> with our said purposes so here we go in order to understand first and second Samuel we really need to understand the historical and theological context in which we find ourselves uh, and as, uh, where the story is and so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna start with the context if we don't understand the context of First and Second Samuel, of what's going on historically and theologically, we're going to be doomed from the beginning. So there's something that we may not understand, we may not know. And i got to make sure my time is right. So let me just equip myself with the proper... i got two alarms, pocket. I'm just ready to go watch, <laughs> clocks. <sighs> but let me just remind us of one thing that... Maybe some of us don't know, and this this might be first information kind of stuff. In the Hebrew Bible, when you read in the Old Testament, you're going to read through the Pentateuch, the first five books, and you'll get to Joshua, and then you'll jump into Judges. And then the very next book after Judges is a book called Samuel. It isn't first and second Samuel, it's just one book called Samuel. And so what we understand from that, uh, the way that they're positioned is when you go from Judges, you jump immediately to Samuel, and so the history of Judges... Follows into the history of Samuel. They're they're one and the same. So you go from this to this. Now in our English Bibles, why that's important to understand is Judges is interrupted by a book called Ruth, and so it goes: Judges, Ruth, and then First and Second Samuel. And sometimes we can get bogged down in all the the chronology and how it's all working. So. What I would want to do is is help us to understand the historical context by taking out the book of Ruth and putting Judges and Samuel together so you can see how it chronologically just flows. Now when we do that, we actually see that the book of Judges is not a very fun book to read. I don't know if you've ever read it before, but you should do it just for kicks and giggles. It's just, it's one of those books where you read it and you go, how did this, how, how is this in the Bible? Because the last five chapters especially is disgusting. It's hard to read. And honestly, when you read it, you're kind of like, I don't want to do this anymore. But we have to realize when we read the Old Testament especially, there's something that's happening there that we oftentimes don't think about. Not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. The word prescriptive means this is what you should do. But we have to realize the history that's recorded in the Bible is oftentimes descriptive. It's simply telling us what happened. That's a big difference between this is what happened and this is what you should do. So when you read things like, hey, Abraham had an illegitimate child, Ishmael, with Hagar. Oh, that's what I should do. I should have a concubine and have a... No, what are you talking about? And then, and and I mean this in the most loving, nice way. That's what people who are ignorant of what the Bible is, that's what they say. Because not all the Bible is prescriptive. Here's what you should do. Instead, it's descriptive much of the time. So when you read the book of Judges, you see so much description which will turn your stomach. And the author does this thing where he has these phrase, this one particular phrase he repeats four times in the last five chapters, trying to make sure that we understand what's going on. And the phrase is found first in Judges chapter 17, verse 6. And it's the same exact phrase, which is the last verse of the book. And it's this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That last part especially, we all are very familiar with. We all do what is right in our own eyes. What's good for you is good for you. You know, like, don't don't tell me how to live my life. All right. When we do that, things like the book of Judges happens. So what are some of the things that are happening in the book of Judges? I don't have time to go through the whole thing. But let me just tell you, these last five chapters are really telling. Starting in chapter 17, we're introduced to a Levite. A Levite is from the tribe of Levi, which means he is a priest. He's from the priestly tribe. And so the Levites were tasked with the responsibility of teaching God's people God's word. Except for this particular Levite actually carves an image and puts it on his fireplace mantle and worships it. Now, we all know that the nation of Israel has the Ten Commandments, and the first Ten Commandment is what? You should have no other gods before Yahweh, the Lord. And so here's this Levitical priest who has his own little god that he's worshiping. You're going, uh-oh, this isn't good. Not only that, but the tribe of Dan, which is in the northern region, they, they come by the city where uh, this Levite is uh, a priest, and they pay him, they hire him to become their priest, And so that means the tribe of Dan takes on this little idol as their god. And so they have this little god that was carved out of whatever, wood, and they they worship him, and this Levite is the priest. And so right from the beginning you realize, uh uh-oh, there is no king in Israel, and everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. This is not good. And then it gets worse. Chapter 18, 19, and 20, we're introduced to this horrific story. And I'll just summarize it as quickly as I can. There's a a man who has a concubine, a wife, who's from Bethlehem in Judah. And uh, she is unfaithful to him, and so he dismisses her. She goes back to her father's house in Bethlehem. After four months, he decides he wants his wife back. So he travels to Bethlehem, and he stays with his father-in-law for a number of days. And finally, they decide, we're going to go back to our home. And so they head out. Except for they left kind of late in the day. And so as the sun was beginning to set, they were kind of worried about just sleeping outside under the stars. So they go to a city called Jerusalem. As they go into Jerusalem, they go to the city square. And as the custom is, when you go to the city square, you wait for somebody to invite you in to their home and for a little hospitality. And eventually an older man comes and he welcomes them because he's from the same region as this man uh, who's traveling. And so they, uh, this man and his wife head to this older man's home. Late at night, there's a knock on the door. The men of the city are demanding that this traveler come out because they want to rape him. And so, of course, that's like, oh, no, 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 no. So the old man says, you should never do such a wicked thing. So instead, they throw out uh, his concubine, and they ravage her and rape her and eventually kill her. All night long they're just abusing her like this. Leave her dead on the doorstep. He wakes up the next morning, sees his wife laying there, the concubine laying there lifeless. Picks her up, takes her home, cuts her into 12 pieces. Sends her to the 12 tribes of Israel and says, look at what you have done. So they want to know who in the world did this. And so it was the tribe of Benjamin. So all of Israel, the 11 tribes, decided to have a war against Benjamin for what they did to this concubine. And they almost wipe out the whole entire tribe of Benjamin. So so much so that there was only men left, they had no wives, and so they couldn't repopulate. You know, multiply and be fruitful is one of those themes throughout Scripture. They couldn't do it. So the people of Benjamin decide that they're going to go and kidnap some women and make them, by force, their wives. And so they develop this plan, and that's exactly what they do. They're in this city called Shiloh, which we're going to see about in a little bit. And they go and they kidnap these women and forcibly make them their wives. And then the book of Judges concludes with this little phrase... In Israel, there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Do you notice the downward spiral of immorality and horrific wickedness? And it is exemplified in the treatment of women. Do you see that? So I hate it when some of the more feminist-type folks are like, see, the Bible like, totally encourages mistreatment of women. No, 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 the Bible is depicting what happens when you fail to let God be king. That's what it's depicting. Women are degraded, not elevated, when God has moved out of the picture. Which is so beautiful because the next, in our English Bibles, what comes after that verse where these women have been mistreated? What's the next book? Ruth. Which is what? A woman who's godly. And it's like God saying, look, look at how horrible these people are treating my, the women who are mine. But look at this woman. Mm, she's a woman after my heart. That's good. All right. So that's the historical context of what we find ourselves in 1 Samuel. It's a horribly decadent, despicable, wicked place. But there's also a theological context. The theological context is this, is that Israel has been anticipating a kingly offspring since its beginning. In Genesis 3.15, when God is cursing Satan because of the fall of Adam... God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Telling us there's coming a day when an offspring of the woman will conquer Satan, and with Satan will conquer evil, death, and sin itself. It's going to be an offspring, a seed of the woman. And then we see when uh, God calls Abraham, it makes a covenant with Abraham Genesis 17 God says I will make you exceedingly faithful and I will make you into nations and look at this and kings will come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you And then God speaks to Judah who eventually becomes, his name is changed to Israel. We see this in verse 10. God says to him, your name is Jacob, but no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Now, when God pulls the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, he says this to them in Exodus 19. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And look at this. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation so right from the very beginning of just humanity, there was this concept that human beings, there will come someday an offspring of this woman named Eve, and eventually through the line of Abraham will come a king, and there will be a kingdom. And then when you see in Exodus, it kind of is a crescendo, This like the big apex of the whole thing. There will come a day where the people of God will be a nation, which are a kingdom of priests which means priest serving God, being in the presence of God, and king having, having authority. Now in the church, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, we are called a royal priesthood. Do you see that? That's one of those things that unites the entirety of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation is this concept of kingly offspring or royal priesthood. The people of God are called to be royal priests. Now, Many people, when they read 1 Samuel, they improperly read it as though the great sin of Israel was to ask for a king. It's not true. God said that there would be a king through Abraham. God said that there would be a king through Israel. God said that there would be a king um, in Exodus because it's going to be a kingdom of priests. And in fact, Deuteronomy 17 is where Moses talks about this very fact that Israel is allowed to have a king. Let me read this. When you come to the land that your Lord, your God, is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord, your God, will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. Notice the offspring has to be from your brothers. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And when, verse 18, he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall, read it, he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law, these statutes and doing them, so that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Okay, so there's a provision written by Moses that you're allowed to have a king. The only thing is that king better be committed to God's word. And if that king ever decides that he's going to divorce himself from the word of God, that's that king's downfall. And we see that time and time again as you read the book of 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. It's one evil king after another. And why were they so evil? Because they disobeyed the word of God. Until you meet a man named Josiah who discovers the law. And then there's a widespread revival that happens because the king and the word of God come together. So the people of Israel always knew that they were to be a a people who would have a king. They knew that his reign would be a delegated authority, always in submission to God as the true king. And the people were always to be a people of the book. So the people were to be a kingdom of priests, and they had this hope as their identity. That one day a kingly offspring would come who would right every wrong and sin, death, and Satan would be vanquished when he arrived. That's their hope. So, why should we study 1 and 2 Samuel? Historical, theological context, but why? Why bother with this old book? Let's just do the gospel. Here's why we learn about the greatness of God and his redemption when we read 1 and 2 Samuel. We don't have time to get in it, but Acts chapter 3 actually mentions Samuel. And it says this in verse 24 of Acts chapter 3 this is Peter preaching about the coming of Jesus and what all this means. And he says, and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. In other words, the the Apostle Peter says, Samuel, you know, the guy associated with this book. Samuel proclaimed the days of Jesus' death and resurrection. He did what? Yeah, he did. So what we're doing as a church is we're going to ask and answer the question, how? How? How did 1 and 2 Samuel proclaim the days of Jesus? How? The apostle Peter thinks it it happened. So the second reason why we should study this book is obviously associated with that, which is we get to learn more about Jesus when we study 1 and 2 Samuel. Jesus taught that the whole Old Testament was ultimately about him. He said this in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, speaking to the disciples on the Emmaus road. He said, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, actually it isn't Jesus saying, it's what Jesus did. He interpreted to these disciples in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So he takes the whole Testament and he goes, guys, guys, check this out. Your your mind, all right, here I am, turn the page. Here I am, turn the page. Here I am, turn the page. Guess what? Yep, me again, turn the page. Not only that, but when Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, look at what he says to them. He says, You guys search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. The idea is you think that somehow you get saved by memorizing verses. That's not what saves you. He says, It is they, the Old Testament scriptures, that bear witness about me. They, the whole entirety of the Old Testament, bears witness about me. So what's the point of 1 and 2 Samuel? Ultimately, Jesus is the point. But I want to show you how. I want to show you how First and 2 Samuel helps us to anticipate typologically in a foreshadowing kind of way that Jesus is the greater prophet, Jesus is the greater priest, Jesus is the greater king, Jesus is the greater... And you just name it. And hopefully by the end of the next four months you will have a better grasp of this. So... With that, 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'm going to read just the first eight verses, set some context for us. And because I have a limited amount of time and because I'm going to preach on three chapters, you can do the math, I can't read every verse. So I'm going to cherry pick what verses I have and I'm going to read those and just highlight them and I'm going to make sure to make connections with the New Testament and the person and work of Jesus as we go. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zeph, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah... Sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, even though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. And therefore, Hannah wept, she would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart so sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? So, God, would you help us now? Having said all the things we've said so far, it's just setting the context for what we want to hear, and ultimately we want to hear you. So, God, would you speak, and would you give us eyes to see Jesus in this text? God, would you give us hearts to believe that you are a God who not only makes promises but keeps them. God, would you grant us the ears to hear how beautiful and wonderful you really are. So do these things for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you notice from this text, Hannah is completely powerless to change her circumstances. If you notice why Hannah does not have children, it's because the Lord has closed her womb tells us right from the beginning that the author of Samuel really does believe that God is sovereign over all things. God is why Hannah can't have children. So Hannah is powerless to change her circumstances. She can't become pregnant all on her own. The Lord has closed her wombs. Her womb, not wombs, weird. And then we read in verse 6 and 7... That because the Lord had closed her womb, that Hannah wept. She would not eat. I don't know if you've ever been in that position where you've been so grieved and so emotionally distraught that you have lost your appetite. That's where she's at. Devastated. And yet one thing we know about God is this. As you read, if you have your Bible in 1 Samuel, you go to the left. What you find as you work your way that way is God loves to work amongst those who are weak and needy. He loves it. In fact, God worked through the barrenness of Sarah, the barrenness of Rachel. You remember that in Genesis? God worked through the outnumbered army led by Gideon. You remember that in the book of Judges? God is described as one who is for the power, the powerless, and the poor. God describes himself as the defender of the widow and the orphan. God says that he demands justice for those who are oppressed. He promises blessing for the meek and blessing for the poor and the beatitudes. He does all of this so that in the midst of someone who is weak and needy, that he would get the glory and that we would be humbled by his provision. That we would see his graciousness, his justice, his love, his care. And in that we would be humbled to the point of declaring that I am not much or nothing at all. And God is Everything. And so God loves to work in the midst of the weak and the needy. In fact, in the New Testament, we see that being a Christian is based upon that very principle. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Fact that we are Christians, those of us who are Christians here, is because we were weak and needy, and God saved us. God does not save us when we are at our best. God does not save us when we are at our most moral or our functioning in full capacity. In fact, to think that we are at our best, functioning at full capacity and being incredibly moral are the very conditions which exclude you from being saved by God because every Christian starts with need. And if you think you have no need, you have no need for Christ then. So even there, Hannah couldn't control her circumstances. God is ultimately sovereign and God loves to work in the midst of those who are weak and needy. So what is Hannah going to do? Well, Hannah, verse 9, after they had eat, eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. And what does she do? She goes in verse 10 and she begins to pray. She was deeply distressed. She prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. My question is, like, why in the world was Hannah so upset? I mean, like, there's so many people, especially newly married people in their 20s, who would, who, who would just lament the fact that they would have, be pregnant. Like, they're just, like, kids are a nuisance. They, they, they spend your money. You can't go on vacation. You can't live in a, in a cool little apartment above, you know, in, in some hipster neighborhood in the city. Like, kids are just, an, get a dog. <laughs> so what's Hannah's deal? Does she not know that she could be a self-contained, like, self-motivated, self-actualized woman of the world? You have a career. What's wrong with this girl? Well, If you remember the theological context of the nation of Israel, it was going to come through an offspring that God would save and rescue a fallen humanity. Not only that, but there would come a priestly, kingly, prophetic offspring who would rescue and ransom and save a fallen humanity. And so if everyone stopped having children, not only did that disobey the very first commandment to be fruitful and multiply, but it also would... Not continue what God has promised that through an offspring salvation will come. So that's why she's grieving. She wants to be a part of what God is doing. So she weeps. She prays. Here's what she prays, verse 11. Oh Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on your, the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor, razor shall touch his head. Lord, I'm praying that you would give me a son so that way I could go nee, 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 to Paninna. <laughs> and I will have him for myself and I will treasure him and I will become the helicopter parent that I know I need to be <laughs> and every time he rides his bike I will catch him before he falls every time he gets a bad grade I will email his teacher and chew her out <laughs> you notice that's not how she prays Lord, if you were to give me this I'm going to return the gift to its original giver. He's given back to you. <laughs> well, what happens to Hannah when she does that? We jump down to verse 18. She's praying in front of the priest Eli who accuses her of being a drunkard and a worthless woman. And she goes, what are you talking about? I'm just pouring out my, my heart. And so she says, let your servant find favor in your eyes or don't think badly of me. And then the woman went away, and she ate, and her face was no longer sad. Okay, so what happened between she's sad and no longer sad? She prayed. Did she receive what she prayed for, which caused her to go from sad to no longer sad? No. You see, it wasn't the reception of an answered prayer that caused her to do, look at verse 19. They rose early in the next morning, and they worshiped the Lord. She did not worship and change her demeanor because God answered the prayer. She worshiped God, changed her demeanor because she knew God was the kind of God that hears prayer and answers it however he wishes. He's sovereign. It's the very act of prayer where you entrust to God your circumstances, knowing that he is powerful, though we are powerless. That changes your demeanor. So when I hear of Christians like, man, my prayer life is horrible, Yeah. It'll probably show in your demeanor and your perspective on the world. Don't you realize we have a God? We're not an atom of the universe is beyond his control. That should put you at ease. God's got me. See, when Hannah was weak, God was working. When Abraham and Sarah were weak, God worked. When Israel was weak in their slavery in Egypt, God worked. When we are weak and needy in our own sin and cannot please God and worship God as we ought to, Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Our very salvation is because we are weak, needy, and powerless to save ourselves. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God doesn't redeem us or rescue us or restore us when we're at our best, running at full strength, or we're, you know, firing on all cylinders with our goodness. God redeems and rescues us precisely because we are weak and needy. And God saves sinners in the most unlikely way. He saves sinners not by coming as a king, but as coming as a servant. God came as a lowly human being born of a woman. With armpits, just think about that. God of the universe with nostrils and eye boogers. God of the universe came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Who would have guessed that God of the universe would hang on a cross bloodied and beaten, naked and exposed? Who would have guessed that? You see, God loves to work in unexpected ways. And Hannah, God is about to work. In a totally unexpected way. How can this barren woman have an offspring? How God intervenes. Verse nineteen, they went back home to the house in Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her, and in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. She called his name Samuel, for she said, "I have asked him from the Lord." You see that? It's amazing. God provides. Then after he's weaned, they head back to Shiloh to worship. And after a couple years, Hannah goes to Eli the priest and says, hey, here's the little boy that I was praying for that many years ago. He's now lent to the Lord in fulfillment of my vow and promise. So here he is. And so Eli takes Samuel into his home and teaches him how to be a priest and how to serve the Lord. And they worshiped God there. Chapter 1, verse 28. And then we get into chapter 2. The response now is worship. This is Hannah's prayer, or it could be a song. So we're going to do something unique, okay? I'm going to ask you to do something which is kind of tough for some folks. You're going to look with your eyeballs to the screen where we're going to put Luke chapter 1 up there. Luke chapter 1 is Mary's song, where Mary visited Elizabeth when Elizabeth was pregnant with John the Baptist. And I want to show you how Hannah's song is an anticipation or, or is, is a foreshadowing of Mary's song. So I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 7. But you're going to look at Luke chapter 1. And your task is to see similarities. <laughs> it's an experiment. It could go wrong. <laughs> 1 Samuel chapter 2. Here's what Hannah prayed. Luke chapter 1, verse 46 and 47. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Luke chapter 1, verse 49. First Samuel. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Luke 151. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Luke one fifty two. The, bow, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Luke one fifty three. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has... Many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Did you see anything? Now think about this concept. Now if Hannah and Mary are similar and then Hannah has Samuel and, and Elizabeth has John the Baptist... Comes after Samuel. Well, we have Saul, but (laughs) the next great person is King David. So Samuel is to David as John the Baptist is to who? Jesus. He's coming. He is the kingly offspring. He's coming. Do you see the connect? Goosebumps. You see the connection? Oh man. So Hannah's prayer anticipates a coming king. Let's jump to verse 10 of chapter 2 where she writes or she sings or prays, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word anointed is Messiah, Christ. The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the strength of the Messiah. Now you have to realize when she sang this and prayed this, there was no king in Israel yet. But she knows that God is a promise-making God and also a promise-keeping God. So if God said there's coming an offspring who will be a king, well, there's about to be an offspring who will be a king because God's word never returns void. Wow. Wow. And then what ends up happening is we're introduced to Eli's sons. Once again, chapter 1, verse 3, we know that it's Phinehas and Hophni. And it says in verse 20, where is that? My contact got blurry. Verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They didn't know the Lord. And so if you read the next section in chapter 2, verse 11, all the way down to about 25, you see how wicked these men are. They're extorting the worshipers. They are defacing the worship of God. They are wicked. Verse 17, it actually says that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And because of that wickedness, Hophni and Phinehas would be judged by God and the whole household of Eli would be rejected. And you see this in verse 22. Now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel, how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Imagine such a thing. So God says this in verse 31. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Verse 34. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Because you will not say anything to your kids or because what you did say to your kids was ineffective, your house, Eli, is judged. But you know what? God works in amazing ways. In the midst of judgment, God loves to make sure that there's hope. Look at this in verse 25. This is where Eli is speaking to his wicked sons. He says, if someone sins against a man, two people sin against each other, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against Yahweh, the Lord, who's going to intercede for him? Who could possibly stand be- between sinful humanity and a holy God? Who could do such a thing? Oh, yeah, now you're seeing it. That's so prophetic, is it not? You see, in the Old Testament, they were anticipating, hoping, longing for a mediator, an uh, interceder, somebody who can stand between them and God and plead their case. And lo and behold, that, that, that person has come, his name is Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, in Jesus, we have someone who is truly God and truly man, the only person in all of human history that can actually relate to what it means to be human and yet be at the same time qualified to enter the presence of God. No one else can do that. Jesus alone is the mediator. And and what we see is Eli knew that that's what's needed and was not yet provided. Jesus is there. And God works in this pattern of judgment and hope. We see that in Genesis 3. Remember when he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring? Remember that? He's judging Satan and at the same time providing hope. There's coming a day where an offspring will conquer Satan conquer sin, conquer evil, and conquer death. In the midst of judgment, there's always the glory of God and hope. And so we see in the midst of this judgment and condemnation of Eli's household, here's this hope found in verse 35. God says, and I will raise up for myself a, this is a key word, faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind to do and i will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever that's that's language of somebody who's going to live a really long time you know like long time like forever okay so who could this be well immediately god is going to provide the fulfillment of this promise in the person of samuel but but you would see that you know what even samuel's going to die and so where's the priest Where is the faithful priest who will be in the presence of God forever? Where is Samuel? Dead. Not yet, but he will get. So who is that? And then we read in Hebrews chapter 2 where the author of Hebrews says, therefore Jesus was made to be like his brothers in every respect. Remember, he is truly God and truly man. Every respect he was a human being. So that he might become a, and look at this phrase, merciful and what? Faithful high priest. So that he might become faithful, merciful high priest in service of God to make propitiation to appease the wrath of God, to satisfy God's justice for the people. And because he himself has suffered when tempted, there's the judgment. Jesus suffered. He's able to help those who are being tempted. There's your hope. Because Jesus suffered the judgment of God, you now Are made available to receive the hope of God. That's good. And you notice that Samuel was growing. We see this in verse chapter 2, verse 26. This Samuel who was given to Eli, ministering before Eli in the temple. It says, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Have you heard that phrase before? That sounds eerily familiar. Hmm. Luke chapter 2, where it actually says that Jesus was in the temple. And in verse 52, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So when the nation of Israel was encountering Jesus and they were seeing in Luke chapter 2 what was going on, you notice in their minds they're thinking, Oh my goodness, he's growing in stature. Favor with God and man, just like Samuel was. Now, Samuel was the, the priest that was promised, and, but he died. This is the new priest. This is the better priest. This is the everlasting priest. This is the one who's going to make atonement for sin. Here he is. And where did Jesus grow? In the temple. He was in the temple growing. Now, where was Samuel? Chapter 3, verse 1 through 3. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. And at that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. But Samuel was lying down where? In the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was, the ark of the covenant was. And when you jump down to chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 to 21, it says, Samuel grew and the Lord was with them. And the Lord let none of his words fall to the ground. And so all of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, they knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh. How? By the word of the Lord. You see, how Samuel grew was by being in the presence of God and being revealed by the word of God. God was revealed by the word of God. Now think about where Jesus was growing. He was growing in the temple of God. And what was he doing in the temple of God in the outer courts when he was 12 years old? Talking about the word of God. But you know what was interesting is when they heard Jesus speak, they went, dude, where did did he get this learning? He's 12 years old. He was revealing himself as God. Through his words. (laughs) What? Now the Ark of the Covenant is a significant thing in this whole experience. The word of the Lord is how God revealed himself to Samuel. You see in verse 7 it says, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And then what we have from verses 8 all the way through 18 is where God actually reveals himself to Samuel and calls out Samuel, Samuel. Samuel wakes up, goes to Eli, what do you need? And Eli tells him, it's not me. Go back and lay down. That happens three times. Finally the fourth time, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel says, speak for your servant is listening. And then God reveals himself to Samuel through his word. Beautiful. But the Ark of the Covenant is important. That's where Samuel was. What's so significant about the Ark of the Covenant? Here, oh, is that really the time? Here's what is so important. You shall put, God, God says this in Exodus chapter 25 about building the Ark of the Covenant. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the Ark, and in the Ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And there I will meet with you. There, on top of this Ark, this box where there's two angels with their wings overlapping one another. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. You see, the Ark of the Covenant of God is where the Mosaic Covenant was stored, the Word of God that was written down. It's the place where the high priest would speak on behalf of the people, it's the place where the sprinkling of blood would take place for the atonement of sins. Samuel was in the temple lying down by the Ark of the Covenant where God speaks to his people, where God meets with his people, and where the word of God is stored. No wonder why Samuel is growing in the Lord. The Ark is so significant. It's the place in which God is enthroned. Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You are enthroned, kingly language, upon the cherubim. And then he says, shine forth. In verse 3, let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 7, let your face shine that we may be saved. Verse 19, let your face shine that we may be saved. You see, where God is enthroned above the Ark of the Covenant, he's shining in brilliance and glory. And that is the place that God has chosen to reveal himself, speaking, meeting with, and atoning for the sins of the people. Brilliant glory, salvation. And you know what? That's a good description of Jesus. In fact, John chapter 1 says it like this, In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made God known. Verse five, "The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, you know, the shine that we may be saved, the true light of salvation who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they were born of God. First John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Do you see it? The person of Jesus is the word of God who reveals God. It's the place in which you meet God. You hear God speak to you. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the prophet of God who speaks the word of God, and none of his words fail. He's the priest of God that stands before God's holiness for you and advocates for you as your intercessor. He is Jesus whose blood was sprinkled for your sins. Jesus is the ultimate promised, merciful, and faithful high priest. Jesus is the prophet of God who fulfills God's word, Jesus is the word of God by which we know God. Jesus is the light that shines in darkness to bring restoration and salvation. Jesus is the better ark of the covenant where we meet God and speak with God. Jesus' blood is a better atonement for sins. Jesus is who we plead to for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is our mediator. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is our better Samuel. Jesus is the better king. Jesus is the better prophet. Jesus is the better priest. And so we read 1 and 2 Samuel because we want to know Jesus. So God, thank you for sending your son Jesus to rescue us from sin and death. And God, I pray that you would be faithful to your people, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through your word, the written word, the scriptures, so that we may behold the wonder and the glory of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ the righteous one in whom there is salvation. And so, God, we give you thanks for all that you've done and all that you've accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen.